Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in the offshore renewables industry and how we'll meet our future energy needs. My name is Stuart Barnes, I'm Regional Partnership Manager at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. We connect agile technology developers, academics and industry players working to accelerate the UK's wind, wave and tidal energy sectors. The UK has a strong maritime heritage, as well as thriving, innovative maritime and clean tech industries. Our maritime sector is vital to the success of the UK's economy, but its carbon emissions are significant and they're growing as a proportion of emissions as other sectors begin to decarbonise. As such, the maritime sector must move to address emissions and the offshore wind maritime sector is potentially a great place to start. Joining me today are three industry experts to explore the topic of vessel decarbonisation in offshore wind, in the hope that the industry can be a springboard to broader maritime decarbonisation and the creation of a thriving clean maritime industry here in the UK. So, let's meet today's guests. Hi all, Stephen Bolton. I'm the Commercial Director at Bibby Marine Limited. Bibby Marine is a very historic Liverpool-based company that owns and operates two walk-to-work service operation vessels or SOVs in the North Sea. Uh, my history is about 20 years working in offshore wind in all phases, construction, O&M, asset management, investment community, but now specialising in SOV technology. Hello, my name is Leo Hambro. I'm the commercial director of Tidal Transit. Tidal Transit is a crew transfer vessel owner operator. We have a fleet of six CTVs operating around the UK and Europe and also uh, a new joint venture building vessels for the upcoming French offshore wind industry. Hello, I'm Joanne Alday. I'm the Strategic Business Development Manager at the Port of Cromarty Firth. We're the largest port in the Highlands and we have built uh, um, one of the best track records for supporting the large work scopes involved with the offshore wind industry. So building out and marshalling the tower sections, the wind turbines, the pile foundations, the jackets, etc. Thanks and, and welcome all. Thanks for sparing the time. So we're going to start off with a bit of a high level kind of conversation, introduce some of the basic concepts that we'll then go into in a bit more detail on today's uh, podcast. So the first one then, clean maritime and the clean maritime plan. Stephen, do you want to tell us a little bit about the context? Well, I guess, Jared, it's, it's, it's not surprising that clean maritime is a focus for an industry that's creating green renewable energy and an offshore environment. And yet we have to stand up to the fact that our vessels at the moment are burning diesel fuel. Really, this is something we should have been working on for a long time anyway. However, there is government legislation and government support behind this, and that comes in the form of the Clean Maritime Plan. It was launched in July 2019, and really it's the government's roadmap as to how we move towards zero emission vessels. How do we get clean growth technology into our maritime sector? It has very strong links into Maritime 2050, which was another government paper where the government tried to set out the future for the maritime sector in the UK. So bringing these two government papers together really gives us that, that roadmap going forward. So Leo, if I could turn to you next, obviously we've got a clean maritime plan, but what about 
vessels they're clearly a, a key part of any uh, maritime plan do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, clean maritime vessels as Stephen mentioned uh, one of the elements of offshore wind is the access to the turbines as well as the construction and things like this but which all use a varying different array of vessels from construction jack up supports uh, support vessels crew transfer vessels or helicopters and all of these are means of access to the turbines and at, at the moment all of them have a hefty fossil fuel carbon footprint And what needs to happen across the whole marine industry uh, outside of the way beyond the offshore wind industry is to meet the the IMO targets of uh, 2050, as as has been mentioned. But also, in general, uh, for an industry that produces electricity to completely greenify the offshore wind industry. I think that it's really important to understand that there's there's an array of opportunities of greening and removing fossil fuel. There's uh, the use of second generation biofuels like HVO, hydrogenated vegetable oil. There's uh, using hydrogen, either as hydrogen in its natural form or basically effectively stored within ammonia, or there's the use of pure electric. All of these types of uh, technology have been used in marine activity to some degree already, but actually surprisingly, considering where we stand today, electric has the, the, the greatest longevity in terms of electric vessels were operating in the upper New York uh, state area in 1880. And we're now talking about greenifying ferries uh, around Europe. There's history to it. Now is the time to actually push forward. We've looked at vessels in the context of a a clean maritime plan. But of course, another essential part of the equation is fueling the vessels. And you've begun to touch on that there, Leo. Joanne, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the challenges and and system requirements in terms of getting fuel to the vessels within ports? It is, of course, broader than than just the vessels. So, of course, there are considerations around fueling of the vessels. So, for a start, which fuel are you going to use, as as Leo has alluded to? Um, But how do you do that safely? So, how are you transferring that fuel? What facility, what regulations do you need to meet? And some of that regulatory environment is still a little unclear at this stage, particularly around um, some of the fuels like green hydrogen. But I think it's broader than that uh, in terms of looking at the whole supply chain. The vessels are obviously a very important part of the renewable energy supply chain, but the supply chain is much, much broader than that. So looking at the port facilities, the engineering companies that supply components and, and the whole supply chain involved there and what their usages of different energies. So it's a much bigger consideration, I think, than, than just vessels alone. So that's been a really helpful introduction to the kind of high level challenge, I suppose, and some of the opportunities. Um, like to just sort of dig down a little bit now and, and look at some of that in more detail. So We've begun to touch on it there, but vessels clearly are really essential when it comes to operating and maintaining wind farms and, of course, to development construction phases as well. Leo, Stephen, could I turn to either of you to maybe um, share some of your thoughts on on the role of vessels, the intensity of, of vessel logistics in supporting offshore wind? It really starts from the beginning, because before any uh, wind farm can be constructed, there's got to be an enormous amount of survey work done, understanding the seabed, conditions, cable routes. So we already start from the very early survey stage, where you have an array of different sized vessels tracing the grounds to to, to cover the area. Then you have the the cables being installed, the installation vessels for putting the foundations in, uh, the turbine installation and commissioning vessels then the crew transfer vessels from simply moving vast quantities of people around during the construction and commissioning phase. And then you get into the nice long period of O&M where you know, there, are, there are multiple solutions like the crew transfer vessels that we operate and uh, obviously the vessels that Bibi have, the, uh, the SOVs. 
all of these things, it's a heavy usage of, of, of vessels the whole way through the life. We shouldn't forget the decommissioning phase, which is like the commissioning phase, but in reverse of effectively removing the turbines and removing the foundations and unfortunately removing the cables as well. There is pretty intensive usage of vessels the whole way through the life cycle of offshore wind. Stephen, anything to add there? I think it's just sort of understanding that that sort of long-term role. You know, yes, we need vessels out there to build the wind farms, and you know that that, and that makes a lot of sense. But why are we sending vessels out there on a daily basis? Uh, you know, in our case, are staying out there to service on a daily basis, and a wind turbine is no different from your car; it needs servicing. So we are out there on the water supporting the technicians that you know carry out that annual service in the turbine when that service can last multiple days now. So when we take the turbine offline, the last thing we wanted to be doing is extending that period. So we need to, we need to be making sure those technicians get on to the turbines you know, every single day so we can shorten that period of downtime and make sure we maximize the amount of green electricity. This is something we have to do. This is part and parcel of the wind turbine technology. It is a machine. It needs checking. It needs looking after. It will break down. Parts do wear out. So really, we have to be there with vessels. Joanne, if I could turn to you now, you're a port operator heavily involved in Scotwind and the forthcoming rapid expansion of offshore wind in Scotland. You're speaking with clients who are looking to use port facilities. A, do you see a shift in terms of the mindset of offshore wind developers towards clean maritime? And B, why now? Why is this happening now? Oh, interesting questions. So we know for the construction phases, certainly vessels play such a major part in these uh, projects between 10 and 15% of the capex of these offshore wind um, projects is spent on vessels. And and that can mean vessels that are tens of thousands of pounds, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds to to lease per day. So the main interest um, in terms of port facilities is how quickly can we get in and out and how do we make best use of these vessels? So from our point of view, it's all about quick turnaround. And um, we're very fortunate that we don't have weather restrictions, tidal restrictions, and um, you know, things that can that that we can't control. And um, but we do have to think about staff and um, you know, mooring capabilities, berth availability, etc., to make sure that we've got the provision to support these projects. I think in terms of why now everybody is creating decarbonisation plans and it would be a little bit nonsensical if the renewable industry itself wasn't doing that. You know, oil and gas have a decarbonisation plan. The Scotch Whiskey Association have a decarbonisation plan. The rail network has a decarbonisation plan. So renewables really should be leading the way, arguably, because they're the solution to everybody else's decarbonisation plans as well. So I think that there's been this obvious statement of intent from governments and the creation of these these legal obligations to meet the, the net zero targets. And I think that's really given the clear signal to industry that as a country, this is the way that we're going. And I think that has kind of paved the way for every industry to start looking at not just their own activities, but the activities through their entire supply chain. Thinking about the uh, the industry demand to decarbonise and, and the fact that government clearly wants to drive a, a future net zero economy, growing back better and seizing this opportunity in terms of uh, green innovation and greening the supply chain. Where do you all see the, the opportunities? What positive kind of green shoots are there that suggest uh, things are starting to move in the right direction? I think we are seeing the, the green shoots. You know, we, we respond to tenders in the market and you're looking for vessels. 
and more and more we're seeing that those tenders are acquiring an element of green technology. You know, I'm sure we'll come on to it later. One of the challenges we have is there is no silver bullet, certainly for our technology, but we're definitely seeing more and more emphasis placed in tenders saying you have to do something, you have to be making the first steps, uh, and we're being asked to show that. We're even seeing tenders now where they're almost splitting you know, our commercial model. We get paid in a day rate for, for use of the vessel each day, where there's an element of the, the base vessel you get a certain fee per day for, and then you get another fee per day for the green technology that you bring on board. So we're definitely starting to see the pull from the clients. It comes with its challenges because you know, our vessels are ordered two years before they're actually needed. So you know, the vessels we're supplying on the water today to meet this green demand were actually ordered over two years ago before this conversation came to table. So really we are talking about you know, what's coming in the next two, three, four years. Leo, any thoughts from you there? I mean, in terms of the differences maybe in, in sort of SOV requirements versus CTV, do you see CTVs maybe as the logical first step in, in terms of greening offshore window and M? It's a good question. I think it's quite bizarre. While we're sitting here talking, I receive an email saying, RFI, vessels powered by green energy. It is the, the perfect timing for an email to be received. <laughs> yeah. Tenders are coming out now for us to supply alternative offerings to our existing clients, the big major companies like Orsted, who have made a, a very clear statement to decarbonize by 2025, where we need to provide a solution. And yes, I think the, the obvious starting point is to go for the smaller, nearer shore existing wind farms, where the distance to travel is, is shorter, therefore the uh, energy density required in the vessel is less. And actually, there's the existing ability to retrofit many vessels that are out there today to satisfy the demands or satisfy the requirements and capabilities of quite a few of the near shore projects. You know, we, we talk about a project that we're involved in where we're talking about having a two megawatt hour battery, which is vast in terms of, you know, it's, it's 20 Teslas, but it only gets you 50 miles. So you know, is that far enough for some of the wind farms? With battery density increasing rapidly, not as fast as many would like, this range will increase. And I think it's considerably easier to do it with a a smaller, nearer shore, a small vessel of a nearer shore project, then it will be to focus on the larger vessels, the cable layers, the SOVs, because the energy requirement is going to be considerably higher. I'm so pleased that it is that the industry is pushing towards this because it seems completely illogical to be working on a wind farm that is producing hundreds of megawatts of power from their wind farms and not being able to utilize that power to service the actual wind farm. And I am delighted that big players such as Orsted are teaming up to, to work on infrastructure solutions to allow this to happen. And the quicker it can happen, the better. Joanne, um, turning to yourself again as the port operator, one of the things I often hear said in relation to the Clean Maritime Challenge is this description of a, a chicken and egg scenario where you've got maybe vessel operators who in an ideal world would love to switch to hydrogen or electric technology, but they're put off by the, the lack of infrastructure and vice versa, the ports or the other providers of infrastructure who in an ideal world would, would love to provide the service, but they can't see the clear route to a client base uh, that can sustain the infrastructure from, from day one. So is this something you recognise? And, and if so, what do you think the industry can do together to address it? It's definitely something that we recognise. Um, and I think it's all about alignment and standardisation, really. We have looked at various technologies to deliver shore power, for example, within the port and, and to help 
visiting vessels connect into green energy provision. Uh, it would help from a, an air pollution and noise point of view, as well as transition to clean energy. The challenge is most ports, particularly in this country, are multi-user. You'll have different sectors using your facilities. So if your renewable sector goes to battery technology, for example, but your cruise sector goes to hydrogen, then all of a sudden you need both uh, facilities. I think the renewable sector needs to align with some of the other sectors who are also making commitments in this area so that you have got that clear pipeline of demand that you, you talked about. But it, it does need to be across the different customers. Some are moving faster than others, but there are a lot of sectors, as I alluded to earlier, that are looking at decarbonisation. So I think it's, it's having that alignment across the sectors so that any infrastructure that is put in can be used by different sectors. And it, that would then be much more efficient, much more cost effective. Stephen? A complete agreement. And I, and I hate to point or look towards government, but certainly for our technology where we really are making decisions two or three years before it's required, we're gambling. You know, if, if we decide today that you know, we think the answer is you know, hydrogen and some form of density that we can carry, and we make that decision, you know, we, we can have the, the conversation with Joanne at her port and see if that infrastructure can come along. Then there's a national debate. What, what happens if the national debate takes the next fuel choice to a different place and says, no, we're going to stick with batteries? We're suddenly going to strand that acid or a white elephant. What, what happens when Europe makes its decision? You know, what happens when Taiwan makes its decisions? This is quite a complex picture for us, especially when you work out how much of a vessel's design, you know, vessel's cost is actually in that first vessel design. You know, we're probably paying about 20% of the vessel cost just to do the design work. And we own that economies of scale when we build number two, three, four, five, and six. So if we call this wrong, then this is supply chain making this decision. If we, the supply chain, or we, an individual company, call this wrong in three years' time, we're not in a very healthy position. So I think there is a national debate here that needs to come in and some guidance. And, and that may be in the form of you know, government saying it is hydrogen we're doing here even if that's not the optimal fuel for the vessel. Or the government may say, no, it is methanol, there is ammonia, but there needs to be some assistance given to us because at the moment we're all working it out on our own desks. If I can just add to Stephen's point, um, I absolutely agree with everything Stephen said, but I think there is another level as well. I think we do need to have this debate at an international level. So for example, the green hydrogen hub that we're looking at in the Cromarty Firth, the biggest element of that will be the export of green hydrogen. So we need to agree a carrier, we need to agree standard processes, because if we're exporting, say, to Germany, they could be importing green hydrogen from us, from Norway, from Morocco. If it's all coming in a different carrier, they've got three different processes, you know, three different types of technology they've got to use, extra cost, the whole thing becomes inefficient and, and too costly. So I think, yes, we have to have that debate nationally, but actually this is the kind of debate we need to have internationally as well. Talking about infrastructure and the need for this choice to be made, is this not the time to be focusing on these massive power plants that are being built in the middle of the sea to also become infrastructure hubs for charging, for fuel generation, for fuel delivery? You're creating your gas station in the middle of the sea. One of the things I, I, that I struggle with when regards to the infrastructure of putting in charging infrastructure or hydrogen infrastructure is that all the ports that operate pretty much globally 
have already had an enormous amount of building of infrastructure and homes and commercial around them. So actually trying to enlarge port sites within existing footprints is very difficult because a lot of the land has already been taken up. To actually move your infrastructure requirement offshore to have your charging station, your hydrogen generator, and to create a charging hub would probably, amazingly, even considering the cost of doing things at sea, be cheaper to do it at sea than it is at land because you don't have to deal with the land issues, the planning issues, the NIMBY issues, the fact you're going to have to dig up half the town to put the cable through and things like this. It seems to be the way, it seems to be logical. Really interesting idea, Leo, and I'm going to come to Joanne in a second. I, I guess I've, I've seen good examples of, of both. So on the one hand, I'm seeing examples from places like Germany, where they're, they're planning the Aquaventus project, which is offshore production with elements of piping to onshore usage and, and also some storage and usage offshore. Equally, though, one of the arguments, and I'll get Joanne to explain it, that, that I've heard put is that in some, some areas of the country, actually ports can become really important as hubs for production, for usage onshore, as well as off-takers offshore. So Joanne, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I'm bound to say, no, it should be done in parts. Of course, I'm completely biased. But there are a number of reasons that I say that. And, um, and a lot of it stems from stakeholder concerns that we've seen within the Highlands in particular. So the Highlands produces more renewable energy for Scotland than any other region where we're the powerhouse for our country. It's something like 26% of the renewable energy comes out of the Highlands. Obviously, that's going to increase with the amount of offshore wind that's deployed. The challenge we have in the Highlands is that our grid is seriously constrained and it costs a lot of money to connect to it, which puts Scottish projects at a disadvantage. What that has meant to date is that grid connections have gone out with our region. So the resource sits in our region, but the jobs bypass and the jobs go somewhere else. And that's the concern that has been raised with doing some of this work offshore. So hydrogen can be produced offshore. It can be much more expensive to store it offshore, of course. So we think a large scale onshore facility is, is more commercially viable. But the other part of that argument is to make sure those jobs are cemented within our country and you don't just get offshore production of hydrogen the vessels just come alongside take the hydrogen disappear off to market you don't get anywhere near the amount of of jobs that you would if you could attract the cluster you could attract the manufacturing you get all of the O&M etc so we think the bigger picture for Scotland is actually to do much of this onshore or at least make sure that the maximum amount of jobs lands on the onshore element. I do take your point, Leo, about the difficulty sometimes of, of expanding port areas, but I mean, in our port in particular, and in lots of other ports in the UK, there's a huge amount of land sitting vacant. It's just a case of, of making sure that we use it strategically. And again, taking that national approach and looking at this as a country rather than individual projects or individual facilities. We're in a climate emergency. We need to act like we're in a climate emergency and, and act the way that we've done in COVID. You know, be much more collaborative, accelerate decisions, work together, and actually find some solutions that, that don't just deliver the clean energy, but actually do deliver all the social sustainability elements that are just as important. And that brings us really nicely into an area that I did want us to sort of explore and discuss as a group, which is this question of kind of green recovery post-COVID. It's a theme that many politicians and, and, and many of us, you know, as, as citizens 
hear an awful lot about and, and discuss an awful lot. And I'm keen to get your thoughts um, as to the extent to which not just hydrogen and the hydrogen economy, but actually the clean maritime economy can drive and, and support that agenda of levelling up, which is also another term we hear a lot from government. Stephen, you're a Liverpool-based company and, and part of Mersey Maritime. Do you want to tell us a bit about your views out there? We think it has a significant role you we're working on sort of socioeconomic analysis at the moment about what this could bring, not just doing the green switch, but also promoting UK build. And you know, we've got the national uh, UK shipbuilding strategy going on as well. And you know, the initial analysis without giving away any of the results, it is significant. You know, that one pound spent in the community doing this or spent in a shipyard doing this in the UK, you know, it's roughly a factor of 10 in that. And we will publish that analysis quite shortly. So in terms of what it brings to the country, significant benefit, but yes, leveling up, you know, where are our shipyards? You know, they're in Liverpool, they're, they're, they're in East Scotland, they're in North Devon, all these are areas that need that investment and you know, have a heritage of the skills and the skills are still just about there. So, you know, there still is a chance to bring those skills back to the front. Again, you know, the Mersey Maritime, the cluster there, the technology groups, catapults like yourselves, you know, MTC, we can do this and we can do this very much at a regional level. So yeah, look, the contribution could be absolutely huge and it's definitely a prize worth going for. Any other thoughts on the potential for uh, clean maritime to, to be able to help support the, the agenda of jobs and skills? I guess a question for all of you, is this something that's time limited? Do we need to uh, act now in order to kind of establish competitive advantage or... Can we take our time and look at how the market goes in terms of future fuel types and technology types? What's your view on that? We feel really, really strongly about this. As I mentioned earlier, we're looking at a step change in the deployment of these offshore wind sites. So moving from a gigawatt up to 11 gigawatt, that's going to be probably the biggest infrastructure construction pipeline of projects for the whole of Scotland, maybe for the whole of the UK um, over the next sort of 20, 30 years. By the time you then add O&M and repowering and decommissioning in, we're looking at a 50-year pipeline of work just through the Scotland sites. And when you add on decarbonisation and the vessels that Stephen's just alluded to, some of the hydrogen opportunities, this is so big, we should all be getting involved in it and all making sure that we maximise it. And in terms of whether the timing is now, we have a unique um, opportunity, I think, in the UK and in Europe more broadly, we can compete with China at the moment if we move quickly in floating offshore wind and green hydrogen technologies. So why can't Europe be the global center for these technologies and have that healthy competition with China where we, we buy to be the best in the world? We're going to be one of the first places that build these projects out at commercial scale. So the technology and the expertise involved in that, if it's homegrown, could then be taken around the world and we could help other countries as they decarbonize their economies. I just think that is such an incredible opportunity, both financially, but perhaps more importantly, ethically. What a phenomenal role for our country to play and what a legacy for us all to leave for future generations. We have to really think long and hard about the whole retrofit angle of this because there are thousands, tens of thousands of vessels operating in, around the world. I don't know how many of them have a British flag, but I, I, I'm sure that the number's out there. Many of them, rather than being scrapped and, and dealing with the carbon footprint of being replaced or renewed, can find an alternative role 
with a retrospective greening of their propulsion system and, and their management. It may not make them as incredibly efficient as a new build bike might be, but the idea of scrapping a vessel that's five years old because it's not tier three engines or can't be hybridized or, or can't be retrofitted is a terrifying thought. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you're aware, Leo, that we're doing a piece of work for the Department for Transport currently looking at this, this question of how you go around decarbonizing and what's the roadmap. And um, it's certainly one of our observations is that if, as a country, we want to achieve an accelerated profile of, of decarbonizing maritime, retrofit is going to be really, really important in that because, you know, many of the vessels that are going to be operating in 2030 are already in the water now. So, yeah, I, I would completely support that view. Leo, do you, do you want to maybe talk about some of the work we've done and, and kind of the role of the Catapult in supporting this transition? Sure. Well, so Tidal Transit has been a part of a development project focusing on offshore charging, specifically an offshore charging barge, where we worked with the Catapult and a group of uh, other naval architects and uh, vessel operators in coming up with a design for a floating charging barge stroke pontoon that would allow offshore charging from an offshore wind farm, but also uh, the potential of battery swap outs for a particular type of vessel um, that was being designed. If we are going to go down an electric solution, offshore charging is going to be required. And we are not talking about a three pin plug. Uh, and we're not talking about a, an even bigger charging cable that you might see at a garage forecourt charging a Tesla. If we have a 2000 kilowatt battery, a two megawatt battery in our boat, to be able to charge that in an hour, which is an ideal time, we would need a two kilowatt hour charging capacity. And a cable to be able to manage that would be, I think it was 50 kilos per meter of cable. So you end up with very hefty bits of kit. And, uh, and we haven't even discussed the size of the plug yet. The infrastructure required for offshore charging is going to be a challenge. The idea that you will have a floating vessel either next to a floating barge or a static substation or a, a floating buoy it adds complexity in terms of how the cable can be managed in terms of making sure it doesn't bend too much because these cables are going to be very sensitive and incredibly expensive. While doing any of this uh, at sea, it does end up being very expensive. I think the key that we have to remember is that you know, every six megawatt turbine that's out there is connected to a grid with a six megawatt cable. And that electricity goes both ways. So there's always power at that point to be able to take 500 kilowatts, one megawatt, two megawatts, even up to six megawatts of power out of that static installation to be able to charge a CTV, an SOV, a, a jack-up barge. It's just trying to work on the innovative solution of managing how you get power from A, so floating vessel B. In either order, Joanne, uh, Stephen, uh, you sort of share some of your experience of, of working with a catapult and, and describe, you know, wh where, where do you see us sort of adding value to help uh, tackle some of the challenges in this area? I guess if I go right back to the start, you know, we mentioned the Clean Maritime Plan, and one of the, one of the first uh, initiatives out of that was a £1 million fund to help green initiatives, and it was launched through Mary UK. Maybe we're a successful applicant to that, working with our partners. And of course, one of the first partners we went to was, was the Catapult to help us underpin that. But we're also working with the, the likes of Holder, Ricardo, Lloyds and Damon. And there our ideas, we're taking our standard or our current SOV technology. And we're looking at all the different fuels that we could possibly put onto that and assessing what it does to the vessel, uh, what it does to its endurance. But then equally looking at 
how how do you build a vessel? You know, so that's where Lloyds come in. What classifications are required? So yeah, we can put ammonia in tanks, but actually when you look at the safety value, we can't put people on top of ammonia, so that rules it out quite quickly. And then the third element of that is looking at the port and land infrastructure and what's required there. We're trying to see it as a triangle and we need to assess each point in a triangle together. So that's, you know, that's a collaborative work that we're doing and it's been great to get the catapults help into that workload. And one of the unique areas you do really help us with is reaching out to our competitors. I'm personally of a view that once you're operating in the water, you don't have competitors. It's all about cooperation, but that's a maybe an idealistic viewpoint, whereas the catapult are brilliant at, at reaching out and bringing, you know, say, competitors in as friends and cooperators so that we can, we can tackle this together as a group. Joanne, any sort of thoughts in, in terms of your interactions? There's a couple of things most recently that we've been uh, working with you on. One was the parts and logistics study for floating offshore wind. So looking at how um, serial production could work for a large scale floating offshore wind project. Again, as Stephen was just saying, working with potential competitors, but in a cooperative way. The Catapult at the moment are also supporting us uh, putting together the Powerhouse, which is a research and development and education centre uh, that'll be focused on floating offshore wind and green hydrogen technologies. So they've been really helping us pull that together and shape what that could look like. It's, it's a very new centre that'll be based out in the Cromarty Firth. So we found, to be honest, all of our engagement with the Catapult is valuable. We, we have some incredible insights that have been shared with us, really useful information that just helps you better understand the industry and better prepare to support the industry. That's great. Thanks, everyone. And uh, I wonder now if you'd like to take a moment to tell our viewers a little bit about your companies and the work you're involved with to progress clean maritime in offshore wind. Off far away. The Tidal Transit is a crew boat operator and we, as part of that uh, role within the offshore wind industry, are focusing on both retrofit and new build for our fleet. Uh, with regards to retrofit, we are planning doing full electric conversions of our existing vessels maximizing the wide hulls that we have and utilizing you know, the existing technology that is already out there with uh, electric motors and, and batteries, which we're actually finding can be very simply done, although our biggest hit issue is going to be range for the time being. We're also working on new builds. We're in the process of building three new crew boats uh, over in France at the moment, where two of them, well, actually all three of them are hydrogen ready for both co-firing hydrogen within 2022 and uh, conversion to full hydrogen combustion, probably 24, 25, if that's the route. But two of them are being built as hydrogen ready and hybrid, so that they are already built in with electric motors and battery packs to be able to take whichever route the fuel choice ends up becoming. I, personally, I think it's going to be electric. We're trying to be ready for eventualities. Really good example of kind of export success there, really. And, and I know you're working in partnership with LDA there. And another great example of UK maritime excellence being exported around the world and the opportunities held there. Joanne, Stephen, do you, do you want to take a moment and tell us about some of the kind of innovative uh, programs, projects, uh, services and that, that you're working on? Part of Cromarty Firth, we're working with a consortium called Opportunity Cromarty Firth um, to 
really make sure that as a country we make the most of these Scotland projects and that the pipeline of opportunities that are coming through. So there's a number of projects we're looking at in there that cover kind of decarbonisation and more broader projects around advanced manufacturing um, and things like that. So I think the main one I'll focus on is the, the green hydrogen hub that we're undertaking a feasibility study for at the moment. We've identified a number of very credible off-takers, um, primarily in the distillery industry, which we think will be one of the first off-takers. And um, it's obviously a great delight working in the whiskey industry as well. So we're looking at how we can cost-effectively uh, produce and distribute green hydrogen at scale, really for regional demand and also for use, obviously with the visiting vessels and from an export point of view. So some quite exciting things happening within the port in the hydrogen space. So I hope that Leo is not wholly accurate in uh, in his thinking that it's all going to go electric. I hope it'll be a little bit of both. But he's absolutely right that time will tell. We'll just have to see which way the technologies go. Stephen, do you want to tell us uh, maybe about the Wavemaster Zero C or, or, or possibly you've got other... Yeah, as I said earlier, the main project we're working on is the Mary UK project, which, as you rightly call, we call Wavemaster Zero C. I've described it before, but that's looking at the various you know, fuels and, and what the implication of those fuels is. We are obviously a very similar story to Leo. You know, we've got the two existing vessels, so there is a, you know, a program of work going on. What can we do to those vessels? It is really interesting because, again, Joanne might like this comment, but batteries aren't really the answer for us. You will see SOVs saying they're hybrid battery, but SOVs use batteries in a very different way, which is not necessarily for pure greening purposes. They use them for what we call spinning reserve, and it's for having extra power to keep the vessel safe when we're using the gangway close to structures. So when we're thinking of what we can do to our existing vessels, you know, we're, we're back to looking at you know, what hydrogen can we take on board potentially, or what alternative liquid fuel We've done all the assessments for the HVO, the hydrogenated vegetable oil. So we know we can switch to that fuel today and run the vessel completely green. Uh, So then it's about engaging with clients, engaging with the supply chain to see if that fuel can come along. But ultimately that's short-term view. So really what we're we're looking at and all our work focuses, what is the silver bullet? What is gonna drive this change for a vessel of our size? And is not necessarily the vessel size. It's the fact that it stays offshore for 30 days which maybe requires the industry to change and move that to 14 days or less. But the, the whole point of an SOV is that it stays out there for as long as it can. So we're working on lots of different themes, but none of the answers are very clear for us. So it's a challenge and a headache, which is why we work with parties like yourself. Leo, Joanne, Stephen, thank you for taking part in today's episode. It's now time to de-energise until next month. In the meantime, listeners can learn more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult.